Hi, it's Mike here. Uh, there's no swearing in this episode, but we do talk about Erebus as a subject of satire, which might not be for everyone. Hi, I'm Karen Hay, and welcome to Television with Sound. Tonight we feature a group that's really on the way up. Get ready for Mr. Justice Mann and his McMurdo Sounds Orchestral. Come gather round, good people, and listen to my song. A sorry tale I will unfold of how I was done wrong. It all began with Erebus across the stormy sea. It finished off those passengers, and now it's done for me. So if you sit upon a royal commission, you will see. You can probably tell that's not Peter Mann. It's comedian John Gadsby on TV in 1982, pretending to be Mann. Gadsby's wearing a wig, black judges' robes and jeans, and playing a guitar. There's a backing band of more fake judges playing behind him. In the early 80s, this sort of satire had made Gadsby and his partner David McPhail the kings of New Zealand comedy. Politics and current affairs were their staple, and they did several Erebus skits. My interest in, in the Erebus disaster was simply, as time went on, when it became more acceptable to make jokes about it. That's David McPhail. Gadsby died in 2015. McPhail remembers wanting to do something on Erebus straight away, like the week of the crash. Luckily, they thought better of that. But shocking each other was half the fun. Once McPhail left Gadsby and their fellow gag writer, A.K. Grant, to finish an Erebus song. When he got back, they said they had it. He still remembers the verse. <coughs> the trip was going splendidly. The view was rather nice. Then nature closed the bar down when we flew into the ice. Now, I went, are you insane? Then they saw they started to laugh, and they'd been sitting all the time, been awake and cutting a verse that would absolutely outrage me. And I said, well, we're never going to use that. He said, we never intended to. In fact, McPhail and Gadsby didn't start making jokes about Erebus on air until more than a year after the crash, not until after Justice Mann's report was released and they had something to work with. One of the keys was that celebrated phrase of his which actually struck a nerve. You bring out a report and you will hear to your surprise The echo of an orchestrated litany of lies Not only because it was perfectly formed, but it pointed out directly that there was some sort of conspiracy, that people in high places, within New Zealand particularly, were lying. And I think it was so current in general conversation that you couldn't sort of do a contemporary show without mentioning his report and without mentioning the, the government's response to it. I said there's been a cover-up, the pilots weren't to blame. I knew who was responsible but wouldn't give his name. The airline bosses hit the roof on hearing my report. They wanted what Muldoon had said and not the things I thought. So if you said about... This skit was broadcast in April 1982. That's two and a bit years after the Erebus crash and a full year after the release of the Marn Report. By this point, the disaster had moved from national tragedy to national scandal. The navigation errors, whiteout, even the 257 lives lost, that was all in the background. It was now comedy show fodder. A shambles involving an autocratic prime minister, a rebel judge and conspiracy theories about perjury and document shredding. It's a shambles that continues to this day. In this episode, we're going to find out why Erebus became more associated with controversy than tragedy. How it became a disaster for its time, forever changing the way New Zealanders saw themselves. 
and how it both turned Peter Mann into a Kiwi folk hero and totally destroyed him. And so I found that royal commissions only have one job, and that's to make a finding that appeals to Chairman but to understand what Gadsby was singing about, we need to back up a tiny bit. Back to where we got to at the end of the last episode, on the front lawn of Peter Mann's home in Auckland, a couple of days before Christmas 1981, the day that the Court of Appeal came back with its decision about Mann's sensational report. Don't ever sit upon a royal commission or you'll see the most expensive exercise in plain hypocrisy. But time is like a DC-10, amazing how it flies. We'll soon forget the orchestrated litany of lies. We'll soon forget that orchestrated litany of lies. I'm Katie Gossett. And I'm Michael Wright. From Stuff and RNZ, this is White Silence. A podcast about the Erebus disaster. There's a lot of talk of Mr Justice Mann's courage. Well, let him display his courage. There was another New Zealand that was emerging, younger people saw a different kind of future. I could say we were left standing with what we stood up in, really. Episode 5, New World Order. Three members of the appeal court said the judge man had no legal right to say what he did. At the end of 1981, Peter Mann was at home in Auckland with his wife, packing for the Christmas holidays. Reporters were gathering on his lawn. They wanted to ask him about the latest chapter in the saga of the Erebus disaster, which by then was more than two years old. The Air New Zealand DC-10 crashed in Antarctica in November 1979, killing all 257 people on board. The first investigation by Ron Chippendale blamed the pilots for flying too low. Peter Mann rejected that. He put the pilots in the clear and said the crash was all Air New Zealand's fault. It had made a bunch of disastrous mistakes and then lied to cover them up. This all culminated for Mann in that one snappy line. An orchestrated litany of lies. Air New Zealand had gone to court to challenge that line and the wider implication that it had conspired to deceive. And now it had won. That was what the reporters standing on Peter Mann's lawn wanted to talk about. And Peter said, I'll say what I want. This is Peter Mann's wife, Margarita. You know her from the last episode. From that moment, it was as if the whole world went mad, really. And it didn't just go away. It started when we were away on holiday. It was there when we came back. I mean, people found out where we were on holiday and the phone never stopped and the notes in the letterbox never stopped. There were flowers left on the door. The Court of Appeal ruling on the Erebus Royal Commission was, weirdly, both the making and the ruin of Peter Mann. We'll get to that, but first we need to tell you exactly what that ruling was. And here you need to think back to episode three, the one about the Royal Commission, because a couple of things we mentioned there are about to become really important. 
First off, remember we talked about how a Royal Commission of Inquiry isn't a court. No one faces charges and the findings aren't a verdict. It's just an exercise in finding out what happened. This meant Air New Zealand couldn't lodge an appeal. If it wanted to challenge Marne, it had to apply for a judicial review, which is pretty much what it sounds like. We want some other judges to take another look at this. So even though it was the Court of Appeal that was doing the looking here, technically this wasn't an appeal. And because it wasn't an appeal, Air New Zealand couldn't challenge Marn on his actual findings. That is, that the crash was all Air New Zealand's fault and not the pilot's. Instead, it had to get him on a technicality. Basically, dispute the process rather than the result. And this is why it honed in on the orchestrated litany of lies. Air New Zealand argued Justice Marn should have given it a chance to respond to this. By not doing so, it said, Marn had exceeded his jurisdiction and broken... The rules of natural justice... Welcome back former Prime Minister Sir Geoffrey Palmer. Palmer still practices and teaches law. He used to be the Attorney General. He basically knows everything about the law, including the concept of natural justice, which can get very complicated if you want it to. There's a lot of mention of the Judicature Amendment Act of 1972, a prerogative writs of certiorari, mandamus and prohibition. Right, you don't need to worry about any of that. Just know that when the Court of Appeal looked at what Mann had said about things like shredding documents, the change in the flight path, colluding to lie about it all, it agreed with Air New Zealand. The judge was out of bounds. It wasn't within his powers to make any calls on things like perjury when it came to this evidence. And even if it was, Air New Zealand should have been given a chance to respond. To ensure natural justice, Mann would have to have said something like, I think you're lying on A, B and C. What do you have to say for yourselves? He should have put it to them. I mean, there's all sorts of things he could do, but he didn't do any of them. Natural justice was not provided. But things got even worse for Mann. The Court of Appeal was split. Everything we just told you was from the court's majority decision. Only three of the five judges put their names to that. The other two, Judges Woodhouse and McMullen, went one step further. They said the statement was unjustified on the facts. Those two judges said we think Peter Mann was even more out of line. Not only was he not allowed to say that Air New Zealand conspired to lie, he also had no evidence to support his theory. Woodhouse and McMullen went deep into the details about document shredding, whiteout, the coordinate change, even Captain Jim Collins's diary, and said on each of them, Mann was wrong. And that made his conspiracy claims about Air New Zealand staff doubly wrong. Quote, the commissioner had no authority or jurisdiction to deal with the affected officers in such a fashion, and the findings themselves are a regrettable addition to the report. Now, I know that might sound restrained, but by Court of Appeal standards, that's about as brutal as it gets. These two judges were saying Peter Mann was incapable of considering evidence and passing judgment on it. Basically, that he couldn't do his job properly. Mann was furious, and not just because of what was said, but who said it. The minority decision was written by Owen Woodhouse, Sir Owen Woodhouse, the President of the Court of Appeal. And he and Peter Mann had history. Woodhouse had been on the Court of Appeal that had overturned some of Mann's decisions. Now that's not actually that bad. Courts overturn decisions all the time. But with Woodhouse and Mann, it went deeper. Mann, the Conservative, thought Woodhouse was a bit too socially minded. It was Woodhouse who set the precedent for the 50-50 split between spouses under New Zealand's Matrimonial Property Act. I can follow his broad view that everything should be half each, Mann wrote in a letter to his friend John Byrne, 
taking a broad view as a convenient substitute for thought. In another letter to Judge Ted Summers, who would later join the majority decision in the Erebus case, Mann foresaw Woodhouse's objections to a sentence he had handed down to a rapist. Woodhouse will leap and gesticulate like a landed trout when he sees that I gave someone 16 years, but I could see no alternative. Now this is just Mann's side of the story. Woodhouse died in 2014, but there was clearly some mutual dislike between the two before Erebus. When that case was heard, Mann learned that Woodhouse and McMullen both had family members who worked for Air New Zealand, yet neither judge stood aside because of that. Mann complained in a letter to his bosses in the Ministry of Justice that the two judges had whitewashed the airline management. In the polite world of appeal court affairs, this kind of hostility was a big deal. A history of the Court of Appeal describes it as the most emotionally fraught case the court has ever heard. The public was gripped as well. Thousands of copies of the decision were sold, $2.40 each, about the price of a movie ticket. Mann was feeling deeply wounded, and a week after he wrote that letter, he went on the radio. I thought, well, surely my position as a High Court judge has been uh, compromised. And that really was the finding which made me decide that it'd be better if I retired. It was a rash decision. Margarita was as shocked as anyone. Peter rang Ron Davison. Ron Davison was Sir Ronald Davison, the Chief Justice. And said, Ron, I'm tendering my resignation. He said, he didn't discuss it with me. I said, do you think that's wise? <laughs> I thought, he should have just waited a moment, just a moment. Not necessarily not resign, but just have a little talk and think about it a wee bit more. In months of reporting and reading and talking to people about Erebus, I haven't found a single person who thought Mann resigning was a good idea. There were different opinions on whether or not the Court of Appeal was right, but no one thought it should cost him his job. It wasn't like there was any pressure on him to go. Again, courts overturn things all the time. OK, this one was harsh, but life goes on. Also, it turns out, resigning as a judge is actually pretty hard to do. The appointment of a judge is by royal warrant, and you can't just resign the royal warrant. This is Sir Jim McClay. You heard him in the last episode. If you follow the news, you might know him as, until recently, New Zealand's man at the United Nations. Or, if you're a bit older, you'll remember him as a National Party and opposition leader from the 80s. During Erebus, he was, as we've said, the Attorney General and the Minister of Justice, which meant he was the man Peter Mann had to give his notice to. But McClay didn't want to accept it. I might say I was reinforced in that by a number of calls I received from leading lawyers who expressed the view that he shouldn't, and I took the view couldn't resign from the bench. So at Christmas 1981, it looked like Peter Mann was going to have a hard time leaving his job. His boss wouldn't let him. But there was one thing that would make quitting a whole lot easier, something that had been bubbling away for months ever since his report was released, something we've talked about before. The airline was run by a couple of his friends. His comments about me today are really quite unfortunate. I don't think he'd read the report. I've read all of these reports. The Peter Mann-Robert Muldoon war of words was about to turn nuclear. Muldoon had made it very clear right from when Mann's report was released that he didn't agree with the orchestrated litany of lies. 
The evidence does not lead to some of the conclusions that Mr Justice Mann arrived at. Back then, Muldoon said he was working off what Air New Zealand's lawyers and board members were telling him. But he'd made his own inquiries too. The day Jim McClay gave him a copy of the Mann report, he asked the head of the Prime Minister's department, Gerald Hensley, to take a look at it. It took Hensley and a colleague most of the night to call about a dozen pilots and get their take. Hensley, now retired and living in Wairarapa, remembers they all said basically the same thing. They all really affirmed the point that it was a serious negligence by Air New Zealand in not properly programming the flight computer. But none of them felt that that was the principal reason for the tragedy. They said, you know, the pilot flies the aircraft, not a computer. In the end, it's his responsibility to do the right thing. Now, no one would question what Muldoon did here. He asked his officials for advice and they gave it to him. It's what he did with that advice that was the problem. He took the material that we gave him and then with his customary combativeness turned it into a much bigger personal issue than it might otherwise have been. It was certainly not the first and certainly not the last occasion when I might have put my head in my hands, but oh dear. Muldoon seemed personally offended that the inquiry had delivered findings that he didn't agree with, and he got way more involved than he should have. He demanded that Mann reveal who at Air New Zealand had orchestrated this litany of lies. Then he accused Mann of hiding from defamation after the judge refused. At one point, Muldoon even started talking about the minimum safe altitudes, remember those, and exactly where the Antarctic flights were allowed to drop below 16,000 feet. This was all super inappropriate for a Prime Minister. Think about it this way. Remember after the Christchurch earthquakes, a Royal Commission looked at the CTV building, which had collapsed and killed 115 people. It found the building wasn't built to code and should never have even gotten consent. Now, imagine if then Prime Minister John Key went to the media and said, I don't buy that. There's no evidence to suggest this building was poorly designed. Imagine if Key also happened to be mates with the guys who designed it. That's about how bad this was. Here's Jim McClay again. It was certainly unusual for a Prime Minister to say, well, we appointed this Commission of Inquiry, it has reported A, and I think not A. That I found quite unusual, and as it became more personal, quite unpleasant, because it did become very personal. McClay is one of the few senior political players from this era still alive. He's rarely spoken about the Erebus saga, even though he was front and centre for some of its most decisive moments. He was the one who appointed Peter Mann as Royal Commissioner. He was the one who personally handed an advanced copy of Mann's report to Muldoon. And he was the one who had to accept Justice Mann's resignation. Forty years later, only one thing from the whole saga really weighs on him. Letting Peter Mann do the job alone. I regret that. I feel that another commissioner, or group of commissioners, perhaps two, would have leavened some of the language that was used in the report. Particularly, I don't think two other commissioners would ever have put their signature to the orchestrated litany of lies. McClay says part of the reason he let Mann do it on his own was that that's what Mann himself wanted. Mann was sounded out early on to be commissioned chair, but McClay had trouble finding an aviation expert to sit with him who didn't have a conflict of interest with Air New Zealand. Then Mann wrote to McClay and asked to do it solo. 
McClay talked it over with Muldoon and... We agreed that we should proceed with just one commissioner. You've heard plenty of what-if moments to do with this plane crash. What if the weather had been better? What if Les Simpson hadn't mentioned there was something odd about his flight path? What if the navigator Brian Hewitt had just hit six instead of four? But this call by Muldoon and McClay, a seemingly small decision to have one commissioner rather than two or three, this might be the biggest what-if in the aftermath of the crash. McClay's right. It's hard to imagine a group of commissioners all agreeing to brand Air New Zealand's case an orchestrated litany of lies. And if that didn't happen, a lot of heartache over Erebus would have been avoided. But it did happen, and Peter Mann didn't stop with his report. The golden rule of report writing is you think about it carefully, put in everything you want to say, and then leave it at that. Mann did the opposite. He kept right on talking. He said he'd name names of conspirators if the government reconvened the commission. He said Muldoon's faith in his advisers might be, quote, sadly misplaced. Not long after he tendered his resignation, he gave an hour-long exit interview to Sharon Crosby on RNZ, and he went down swinging. We played a little bit of it before. This is Mann explicitly slagging off Muldoon. I don't think he'd read the report. The airline was run by a couple of his friends, and I think he more or less uh, were just taking their side. This high-profile interview enraged Muldoon. Mann had basically accused him of being lazy and looking after his toady mates. So Muldoon retaliated in a press conference the next day, describing Mann's comments as... Loose talk of a kind that we don't expect from a High Court judge. Actually, that was about the nicest thing he said. The rest was extraordinary, even for Muldoon. I've read all of these reports more than once, and I understand them. In fact, I think I understand them to some extent better than Mr Justice Mann does. I was the person who nominated him to Cabinet. I think that's generally known on the basis of past performance. On the basis of his current performance, I doubt whether I would nominate him again. There's been a lot of talk of Mr Justice Mann's courage. Well, let him display his courage and clear the rest that he's pointing the finger at and say precisely who it is that he believes is guilty of those offences. That's all I've got to say to Mr Justice Mann. For Maclay, the public slagging match between the Prime Minister and a High Court judge was getting to be too much. Then Mann sent Maclay another letter saying he'd asked the senior judge in Auckland to stop assigning him cases. If they wouldn't let him resign, he'd just refuse to work. Maclay had little choice. Late yesterday, the Prime Minister told a news conference in the Beehive the unequivocal tenor of the second letter left the government little option. We believe that as he's made the statement so positively, then we finally have no option but to accept it. Peter Mann was done being a judge. But his departure and his whole spat with Muldoon only ended one of the Erebus sideshows. The saga just dragged on. There were media reports about documents that didn't make it to the Royal Commission, reports about documents that were altered. There was even an encore appearance from Ron Chippendale, the Chief Air Accident Investigator. He'd put out a 19-page press release, taking apart the Mann report back when it was published. Now he released another one, just three pages this time, basically repeating himself. There were some legitimate points mixed in with some very self-serving ones, but he kept pushing the line that Mann was wrong and he was right. All this bickering was confusing for the public. A commission of inquiry is supposed to reassure people, 
we're looking into this thing, and here are the answers. But more than two years after the crash, two completely different explanations about what caused it were still circulating. And some of the arguments that were going on were just crazy. Every few days, the newspapers had a story about someone attacking someone else. Muldoon attacks Ma. The Labour Party attacks Muldoon. Social Credit Party attacks Muldoon. Social Credit attacks the Air New Zealand board. Everybody attacking everybody else for making the whole thing too confusing. I found one story where Chippendale had a go at Marne, and another where Marne had a go at Chippendale in the same edition of a newspaper. But probably the single weirdest fight led the news on January 23, 1982. It involved the left-wing politician Jim Anderton, who back then was the president of the Labour Party. Anderton went to Air New Zealand's Auckland HQ for a private meeting with the chairman of the airline's board, Bob Owens. This had nothing to do with Erebus until Anderton changed subject mid-meeting. He demanded that Owens accept the crash was all Air New Zealand's fault and apologised to the families of the dead crew for the way the airline had behaved at the Royal Commission. He wouldn't talk about anything else. Things got so heated, Owens called security and Anderton, the future Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand, was ejected from the building. Labour leader Bill Rowling, who, by the way, was also chiming in on Erebus, calling for yet another inquiry, had to go to Air New Zealand House to smooth things over. Here's the curious thing, though. That Court of Appeal ruling ruined Peter Mann, if only because it made him quit his job in a huff. But it was also the making of him. His career was in tatters, but his reputation wasn't. After Erebus, he was the most famous judge in New Zealand, and the people were on his side. Here's comedian David McPhail again. The major cause for comment was... How on earth can a man of man's position and stature be humiliated like this when he's doing the best job he possibly can and that he had his legs shot out by the government and by Air New Zealand? When David McPhail and John Gadsby did their various skits and songs about Erebus, Gadsby played man because he was tall and McPhail played Air New Zealand boss Maury Davis because he was short. And because I could have a voice rather like that like he had. I mean, there was a lot of very bad will in the country about Murray Davis. And he was, in fact, almost a too easy target. People just didn't like him. They didn't trust him. And because of the implication was that he was lying, that made him even worse. This public contempt for Air New Zealand cast Peter Mann as the people's hero. The theme ran through all of MacPhail and Gadsby's Erebus material. They thought Mann was right, or at the very least had done a good job. And they didn't like what was happening to him, or what the government was doing to him. And this is the part of the Erebus story that has always baffled me the most. The fact that all of the jokes, all of the commentary, buy into the idea that there really was an orchestrated litany of lies. One of the reasons I started looking into Erebus was because it was our worst ever disaster and I knew almost nothing about it. Except for that line. Everyone knows that phrase. But if the Court of Appeal threw all of that out, why is that the thing that everyone remembers? I mean, yeah, it's catchy, but it got thrown out, and Mann resigned. That's the thing, though. It was catchy, and it caught the public imagination. Remember how Margarita Mann said their world went mad? There were flowers and letters. The phone was ringing off the hook. You know, like a man ringing up one evening. He said, well, um, he had an accent, an Irish accent. He said, I'm calling from the pub. And he said, he said... Would you just tell him from us, from all of us, more strength to his arm? 
and we were all here talking about it, and one of them said, well, you've got to ring up and let them know. Let them know. <laughs> Man's old friend John Byrne remembers having lunch with him in Christchurch not long after he'd resigned. When we came to pay, uh, the girl told Peter that someone else in the dining room who'd seen him had already paid for his meal. And Peter said to me that that quite often happened. So he was popular with the people, but for some reason, which I've never really worked out, the, the sort of the strength of the establishment switched right against him. I think I've worked this out. Peter Mann, arch-conservative, became Peter Mann folk hero because New Zealand in the early 80s was changing. There was another New Zealand that was emerging. This is Jock Phillips, born 1947. He's one of New Zealand's most prominent historians. He's written a lot about New Zealand at war, its colonial history, and how it changed into a modern country, even a book on Kiwi masculinity. It was partly a generational thing. Younger people often had been to university, very well educated, very well read, questioned the whole value system of the 1950s and started to get out into the streets, protested about the Vietnam War, nuclear power, and saw a different kind of future. Now, if you weren't alive when Erebus happened, Phillips might be talking about your parents here, the baby boomers. They were probably at school, maybe in their 20s, when Vietnam happened, when second-wave feminism arrived, when saving the environment became a thing. And when Robert Muldoon came along, old school and dictatorial, and attacked Peter Mann, things came to a head. He had defended the small man, and he wasn't seen as being bought off by you know, the large corporate establishment. I, I think that that's why there was a good deal of sympathy for him. The orchestrated litany of lies helped. It played in to a great suspicion that people were starting to have. They were starting to challenge authorities. They were starting to challenge institutions. And the idea that an institution would actually sit down and do an orchestrated litany of lies, people were eager to believe that it was true. There was one other big thing happening in New Zealand in 1981 that meant people, especially young people, were primed to stick up for someone like Peter Mann. It's a real shambles here at Rugby Park, Hamilton. There's no way this game's going to start for quite a while by the look of things. He will stop this tour if he'll not take The scene is really turning very ugly here at the moment. The 1981 Springbok Tour was social turmoil on a scale New Zealand had never seen. For Kiwis, the South African rugby team embodied that nation's racist apartheid regime and they were determined to oppose it. The controversy was everywhere. And the scuffles are still going on. The riot police getting right in, some kicking, some using their bat on. What happened to it? Peter on the head with a bat. on the head with a bat. He did. He did. Animals. The game has been cancelled. Right through the Erebus Royal Commission, which was months before the tour, the newspapers were full of story after story about the Springboks. Was the tour happening? What were the protesters saying? What was the government doing? Would Air New Zealand fly the team around the country? Even the Marn report, which came out a couple of months before the Springboks arrived, only dominated the news cycle for maybe three days. Then it was back to the tour. 
I think there was a dawning, well, particularly in 81, that really cemented it. Author Greg McGee, born 1950, was front and centre during the Springbok tour. On the outside, he looked like a rugby man through and through. A good enough player that he made the junior All Blacks and even got an All Black trial. But he was also a boomer with a law degree from Otago and he couldn't stomach the Springbok tour. He joined the protesters and famously burned his trial jersey. Because there were a lot of people who went out onto the street and protested who had never protested before. The urban liberals were out there. You know, you see these women in twin set and brogues out there with uh, policemen raising batons against them and just shocked that the, the organs of the state could be so malevolent. So there's a rising sense of injustice. McGee was having a moment himself around this time because his breakout play, Foreskin's Lament, had just come out. It was a hit. It skewered the macho Kiwi rugby culture and questioned all the things that Robert Muldoon and his followers stood for. It was sort of the last stand of the generation that had fought in the Second World War. My father and Maury Davis, they had had the power and I think the 80s was the time when they realised that the world wasn't owned by them anymore. They were, you know, <laughs> the original stale male pale and on the way out. And you could see the whole Erebus saga, but also particularly the 81 tour as the last desperate attempt to basically stick their finger in the dike and stop their power from leaking away. David Nicholson, who lost his sister Christine in the Erebus crash, was a teacher in Christchurch at the time of the tour. He remembers the divisions it caused. It split families down the middle, you know. It created rifts. And that's a kind of an amazing thing. And it probably just reflects that very big social change that was occurring. And so, this was the New Zealand into which Peter Mann's orchestrated litany of lies landed. Whether he was right or wrong almost didn't matter. He'd come out against the government, and governments weren't to be trusted, especially ones led by Robert Muldoon. Here's David McPhail, born 1945, again. There was a shift that we began to be less credulous, I suppose. And when Mann got attacked publicly, that was when the sense of fair play came in, you know. That's his report, that's what he believes to be the truth. Why is the government persecuting him like this? In 1982, Peter Mann was an unlikely people's champion, a grey-haired establishment figure who'd inadvertently captured the zeitgeist. New Zealand was changing, and the old guard with their conservative values were on the way out. But for all that, Peter Mann was just 58 years old and out of a job. His pension wasn't due for another two years. Despite everything that had happened, the government thought he should get something. Mann met Attorney General Jim McClay to work out the details. Cabinet made some statement to the effect that it was disposed to be generous. And I met with him the following day and I put to him a proposal which had been drafted by the Treasury, which he described as very generous. Now, I don't doubt Jim McClay's recollection here, but you're about to hear a very different version of that story. Because Peter Mann wasn't great with the everyday tasks of life, especially when it came to money. So what Peter thought was generous... Margarita wasn't so sure about. He said, oh, I said, thank God that is done. They've allowed me a little pension. I said, well, how much, Peter? He told me. I said, you're joking. No, that's it. He said, oh, because there's probably this job at the university in Christchurch that had been talked about, and I'll be writing. So if you add that to it, 
we'll be all right. I said, Peter, that's all dependent on your keeping your health. You did have a heart attack ten years ago. And his face went stony. Still, at the moment, things were okay. Man was in reasonable shape despite that heart attack and he had a bunch of job offers. Lots of them from Australia, oddly enough, and a part-time one from Auckland University. But he passed these up to go for a full-time gig in the law faculty at the University of Canterbury, the job Margarita just mentioned. He didn't get it. But that didn't stop him moving with his wife to Christchurch in the expectation that he would. Once again, he didn't talk it over with Margarita. She read about it in the paper. I said, wrong place to go, Peter. Wrong place to go. Because Christchurch people don't ever know whether they're Arthur or Martha. (laughs) And they follow like sheep. What that one thinks and that one thinks, well, they follow along. (laughs) Peter Mann was back in the city where he never felt he quite belonged. The public were fine. This was about the time he went for lunch with John Byrne and a stranger picked up their tab. But according to Byrne, the old Christchurch class system kicked into gear. His colleagues didn't want to know him. Because they'd somehow got the idea that he was a rebel and had attacked Air New Zealand. Several times, Mann's few friends tried to organise a cocktail party to mark his return to Christchurch. And this is extremely common with judges coming to a town. But there were several of them there who just wouldn't do it. So he was down on his luck. Another job came up, this time at Lincoln University, but someone else got that as well. It was the winter of 1982. That year, a wicked strain of the flu was doing the rounds in Christchurch. And it was affecting people's breathing. So we thought that Peter had got that flu and his breathing was, you know, he was struggling with a bit. So I rang a doctor who was known to be pretty good. He said, I'll ring a friend of mine. I'll talk him into going to see him. And it was a heart specialist. Man had no job and his health wasn't going to last. But he had two cards left to play. He was writing a book about Erebus, his final word on the whole saga, and he'd started planning a last-ditch legal effort. As well as the early pension, the government had agreed to pay for Man's appeal to the Privy Council in London. Man was going to fight Air New Zealand one last time in the highest court in the land. A book and a lawsuit. One of them would be a success and wield a huge influence on the legacy of Erebus that lasts to this day. The other would be an abject failure. The story of Erebus wasn't over yet. I could never, ever forgive Woodhouse and McMullen. They caused this to happen in our lives. But cards go round power. He pulls up. He is ultra, ultra cautious. And yet there was still no national memorial. And the first question I had was, what has taken us so long? That's next time on White Silence.
White Silence is a co-production between Stuff and RNZ, written, produced and presented by Michael Wright and me, Katie Gossett. Our executive producers are Tim Watkin and Justin Gregory for RNZ, and for Stuff, Carol Hirschfeld, Keith Lynch, John Hartevelt, Carmela Heyman and Adam Dudding also helped produce this podcast. This episode was engineered by Alex Harmer and included audio from Nga Taonga Sound and Vision, Archives New Zealand, Channel 9 and TVNZ through Getty Images. You can subscribe to the full six-part series at Apple, Spotify, Radio Public, Podbean and other podcast providers. You can also go to the Stuff or RNZ homepages to find details on how to subscribe.